Good morning, good morning. So as Rocco mentioned in our announcements, we have, or we started last week, uh, the creed, basically statement of what we believe in. And some would say, well, why do we need a statement? Well, sometimes people don't have the, let's say, the energy or the attention span to hear someone basically explain what they believe for a full hour, because sometimes it takes a lot more than we think it does, and you know, we lose people sometimes. We talk about what we believe in, and the creed is something that basically breaks down what we believe in in a summary. And so we're going to continue today with the crucifixion. Next week, Alan will do the incarnation, and then after that, Joey will do the resurrection, and so on and so forth. So this week, we, we talk about death, but after that, we'll talk about life. So look on the bright side. All right, so the crucifixion, it's the authenticity of Christianity. Um, and we say, I believe. I believe in this. And so the creed, it says this. He says, it's, he suffered, that being Jesus, the Son of God, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. That is the basic. So I normally don't use PowerPoint, but today I thought it would be good because I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you. And guess what? We're not going to read a lot of them. I'm just going to give you the reference, give you a brief explanation. I don't know why, but Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, they are all long chapters as they discuss the crucifixion. And in each one of them, there are little, little author, you know, in, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Just author personalities coming out, author focuses. Intric- I can't even say the word, so I'm not going to try. Um, and Matthew 27 is the intensity of the mocking. Matthew really covers that, the, the flogging that takes place at the, the hands of the Roman soldiers and then the mocking while he's on the cross uh, by all those around, by the, the leaders and everyone else who's watching. And then Mark 15 talks about when Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for the body, Pilate is shocked that Jesus has already died. He's not supposed to die this quick. So he sends out a centurion, and the centurion comes back and says, yes, he's dead. He is actually dead quicker than you thought, Pilate, which shows that Pilate really wasn't in control. Jesus was in control the whole time. Um, Luke 23, the thief on the cross. You know, Lord, remember me when you come in, into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's the focus on that. And then in John 18 and 19, we see there's the focus on the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate. About Pilate saying, hey, don't you know I have the power to release you? And Jesus says, no, you don't have the power. <laughs> the, the power you think you have actually comes from above, actually comes from, from God, and he's the one who's in all control of this, and I have the power as well because I am the son of God, and really, you don't. Sorry, Pilate. Yeah, imagine a Roman governor being told that. Yeah, you don't really have the power. Sorry. You don't have control. And then we see in the Old Testament, it, it is prophesied. The crucifixion, the, the suffering of Jesus under Pilate, the crucifixion, his death, is all pros- prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, read it all through. There's a lot. If you read Psalm 22 and then go read the crucifixion story side by side, you will see a lot of these things come together. See how they piece together. That's why I'm saying this is a lot of homework for you to do on your own time. I know it's the summer for those of you who are in school. Sorry, homework. You can handle it. It's good. Um, Psalm 22. uh, The biggest verse we know in there, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And obviously Jesus says it on the cross, but you can see many other things. And then Isaiah 53, which is the, the suffering servant, you know, the, the description of Jesus on the cross and the death that he would die and that we all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And just a description there that he was, we did not esteem him. We didn't even recognize him. There was no beauty. There was no form to even know who he was. 
Um, that was to describe what he would look like, what he would go through on the cross. So it's all there laid out before us, and you can line those up. And there's many other areas in the Old Testament that prophesy, just little verses here and there, but don't have time to break them down. But these are the two main ones that you can go back and say, aha, it lines up. It's true. It was prophesied in the old, comes to fruition in the new. So the breakdown. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is that important to our creed? Why is that mentioned in the creed? Well, it's historical. It's historical fact. Pontius Pilate was the real governor of Judea in the time of Jesus. Now listen, he was obscure. No one knows who Pontius Pilate was before Jesus, and actually no one even knows what happens really with Pontius Pilate after Jesus. Yeah, he goes back to Rome. He gets relieved of his command as governor, and you know he goes back to Rome and pretty much dies. That's all we know, but he's an obscure governor. No one knew who he was. He was a governor on the farthest outpost of the Roman Empire. In fact, the provident province of Judea, guess what? It was a buffer. It was seen as a buffer between all the other worlds out there in the Middle Eastern from the Persians and whatever else who was out there at that time. It was seen as a buffer because if they invade the Roman Empire through Judea, we're going to know and we're going to have time to prepare to counter. So it was really the last place on earth that you wanted to go as a Roman governor. So Pilate being out there, this wasn't a, a real big claim to fame. This wasn't a step in the direction to move up in the Roman chain so to speak. You got sent to Judea. You got sent to this barren outpost in the middle of nowhere in the backwoods country, so to speak, of the Roman Empire. You, no, one, no one wanted to remember who you were. But Jesus is suffered under Pontius Pilate. He is the one who tries and oversees Jesus' flogging and crucifixion, all recorded in the gospel accounts. And it's proof that this event did occur. These are real people happening in real time at a real place on earth. All the things that are mentioned, the place of the skull, the seat of judgment, all the things that Jesus does, the, the walking down the way, carrying his cross, Simon of Cyrene, all this is recorded. The recorded conversation with Jesus in John 18. That idea that it's a historical fact. This all happened, and Pilate was the one who oversaw it. Pilate's a real person in history, Roman, you know, Roman historical fact right there. there. If you went back in time and looked at all their records, they would show you that he was the governor of Judea at that time and that he oversaw Jesus' execution. The Romans kept good records. Yes, they've all vanished because of time and this and that, but you know they, they kept good records and there was proof. And then the idea of crucified, died, and buried. Reality. We mentioned that in the creed because it's real. Jesus really was crucified. Jesus really did die. And Jesus really was buried. There wasn't a substitute. Many of the Gnostics that would come up in the late first century AD would tell you that, no, 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 Jesus didn't really die. It was somebody else who died on the cross in this place that looked like him. Or when he went to the cross, it really wasn't him, his, his soul, his spirit had so, so to speak, gone up into the heaven and it was just basically a shell that was being crucified. It really wasn't Jesus. That's what the agnostics would like you to believe, the people who tried to disprove that, that, that Jesus Christ died for their sins. In fact, Islam will tell you that, that it wasn't Jesus who died. It was somebody else who died. They, 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 that looked like him. Jesus, he would never die as, the good, as a good prophet, as a good teacher. So someone else died in his place, but he did die. We see in the Gospels, there's the spear in the side. You know, they go to break the legs of those on the cross to speed up the death 
because the sun was setting and Passover was coming, and they come to Jesus, and it says he was already dead. So just to confirm that, boom, throw the spear in the side, and out comes the blood and water. That's also prophesied in the Old Testament. So proof that he died, and then obviously he's buried in a tomb. In all four gospel accounts, Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks Pilate for the body and says, I want to bury him in my tomb. He died. He was buried. All the gospels state this. And once again, it's against agnosticism, but it's, it's to prove and to show us that it is real. Everything Jesus experienced on the cross during the crucifixion was real. No substitute, no hologram, no fake. This was all real. And that's what the creed is trying to say. This all really happened. And then we come to the toughie. Descended to the dead. Now, John mentioned last week that, you know, the other version, the Roman Catholic version, says descended to hell. Um, and really, to be honest with you, we could debate that all day long. And we could speculate all day long about what it means. Um, but nowhere in the Bible does it really clarify what the creed is saying. In fact, if you look at the Nicene Creed, which is written in 300-ish A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, they come up with a creed that's very similar to this, but they leave out this line. <laughs> they, don't, they don't mention it. Uh, the Council of Nicaea was also the people who got together and said, this, these are the books that will be in the Bible. Um, you know, the Spirit has led us to put these books in the Bible. So that council comes up with a very similar but separate creed, and they'll even mention this line. But it's an affirmation that he died. He did die. He, he didn't say, oh, I just dipped my toe in death, and then I went up into paradise. No, he tasted death for us. He experienced death. When he was laid in that tomb, he died. He died. The Old Testament, the, un, the world where, where you would go when you die would be Sheol. That, that was death. Everybody went to Sheol. And as you see in some of the, the parables from Jesus when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, they're both in Sheol, but one is in the lake of torment and the other one is at Abraham's bosom, which is, which is paradise. And, and it's, it's a whole complicated theological thing. We don't have time to get into it. But it's this fact that Jesus did die. He experienced death. When he went into that tomb, he was dead. And he did not come alive until, as Paul writes in Romans 6, God raised him from that dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, he did not come to life until that third day as he predicted. He tasted death. In fact, when Peter is speaking on Pentecost, he's saying, hey, you killed, in Acts chapter 2, you killed the author of life. You crucified him. He was crucified by you, and he did die. But guess what? Death couldn't hold him because he loosed the pangs of death, and therefore he rose again. God rose him again by his power. But he did die. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, I think these verses are always key for us because they bring in a reality of his death and they bring in the fact that he truly did taste death. And the Hebrew writer writes this in verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus tasted death. He shared in the same things as you and me, and that includes death. Why? To take it away, to take away the sting, to take away the fear, to take away the slavery that so many people in the world thought, death is the end. When I die, that's it. And Jesus says, no, there's more. Death is no longer the end. Death is more of a gateway to eternal life. So it's, think about that. 
he descended into the dead. He died. He tasted death. If he were on a hospital table in your ER and he flatlined, they would pronounce him dead. They would. And they would roll him into the morgue, not to be morbid, but I'm saying that is what he experienced. He tasted death. We can talk about more later. Elsewhere in the New Testament, where else does the crucifixion get get mentioned or defended? Peter at Pentecost, and then when he defends the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate in front of the crowd in Acts 2, 3, and 4, you can read about a very interesting story. Peter, who was very impetuous, always put his foot in his mouth. Well, guess what? Now that the Holy Spirit's in him, boom, he's just laying it on them and defending the crucifixion. Paul, in his writing, mentions it many times. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. In fact, it's, it's right there up on the wall. If you want to read it, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and then he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was died, and he was buried. Galatians 3.13, the idea of hanging on a tree. Paul says, as, as he, he quotes the Old Testament prophecy, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus became the curse. Jesus died on the cross. Philippians 2, 6-8, he experienced human death. It says he took on flesh, took on the form of a servant, took on human form. And he became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Paul wants to get that across. He came in the flesh. He came in the flesh and he died on the cross. He was so obedient to the Father that he was willing to go to the cross for you and me. And then 1 Timothy 6.13 tells us about the good confession that he makes before Pontius Pilate. That in that conversation that he has with him, he confesses who he is. He holds to who he is, and he tells Pilate about why it's all going to happen and how it's all going to happen, and Pilate doesn't have any control, but Jesus does. So he makes the good confession. And then with Peter's writing, sorry, let's go back there. Got a little quick on the trigger. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24, the idea of his suffering, and, and you know, did not revile when he was reviled. He did not return that, but he suffered for us by hanging, having his body hanged on a tree. First um, Peter 3.18, he was suffered. He was put to death once again in the flesh. This is Jesus dying in the flesh. And there's so many more, and I could have included many more, but we don't have the time. But those are just some verses that we see throughout Scripture that say, hey, yes, the crucifixion actually did happen. Jesus suffered under Pilate. He was crucified. He, was di- he died and he was buried. So there's the, the basic proof. You can go into more detail. You can discuss it at length. But right now, we're just looking for the basic proof. And here it is in the New Testament. So what does it establish? What does it do? That's all great. Information is wonderful, but if it does nothing for me, it's useless. It's like a lot of classes I took in high school. Sorry, Mom and Dad. It's like chemistry. Um, what did that do for me in high school? It got me by. It got me the science requirement. That was pretty much it. I don't know how much chemistry I've used in my life. Maybe I have, but I haven't really thought about it. Um, It happens. Um, Same thing with some of my math and English classes. I don't know why I was in there, but I did. I got through it, got some good grades. Hey, what was great about college? I only had to take one math class. And I got an A, so I moved on. That's great. Being a history major, math is not (laughs) important, at least in what we think it is important dates it is, but not not that much. But what does it establish? What does it mean to us? Is it just information that we don't care about? No. No, it's not that. It's not just some information that someone throws out there and you're just saying, ah, it means nothing to me. No, it does establish something. What does it establish? The first thing it establishes is that it validates what Jesus said. Jesus said a lot. 
in the Gospels. If you have a, a Bible where the words of Christ are in red, you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see a lot of red because that's Jesus speaking. He says a lot of things. But one of the things he said was about his death. And he said it many times. He predicted his death. He predicted how he would die. He would tell his disciples to their faiths, first kind of like mysteriously, he'd be like the son of man is going to be handed over to the rulers who will then you know, try him, mock him, kill him, or crucify him, and then he will rise again on the third day. He predicted his death, and he did it many times. You see all the references there. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Mark 8, Luke 9, Luke 18. There's more. Those are just the basics. And every time, it's, it usually happens when Jesus did a miracle or something great happened, or maybe even when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and Peter comes ba- Jesus comes back and is a buzzkill and says, hey, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, be, be tried by the hands of men, by, the, by our leaders, by the Romans, be, be crucified, die, buried, and then rise again. In fact, Luke 18, that records where he says to, when Peter comes and pulls him aside and says, hey, Lord, uh, you shouldn't talk like that. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not do the will of God, but the will of man. Um, Jesus knew where he had to go, and it validates everything he said, predicted everything he predicted about his death. It also validates what his mission was. Jesus talked a lot about what his mission on earth was, why he came. He does a lot of it in John. Um, But first off, we see when he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3.15, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like the serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He was talking about himself. Mark 10.45 says, hey, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm going to give my life to ransom, to buy back the souls of this world, to save the people from their sin. He came, as he says in Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Save, how am I going to do it? By ransoming them, by giving up my life. In Matthew 9, 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How am I doing that? By dying on the cross. That's how I am calling sinners to repentance. That's how they can repent. And then obviously in John 10, 10 11, he, he says, I, I give my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. I, the good shepherd, lay down my life for the sheep. I am the one who lays it down and I take it up again. No one can do that. I have the power in doing it. I call the shots in this. I lay it down for my sheep so that they may have life to the full. It validates his mission. Everything he said about why he came, it validates that as well. Because if he doesn't die, all that he said means nothing. It's just useless information. It's just in ear, in one ear and out the other. But because he dies on the cross, he validates everything he said and obviously everything he did. It proves that he is the Messiah. What else does it do? It establishes the center of the story of Scripture. Crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the center of the biblical narrative. You, you, you can't put it in any other regards. It becomes the center. After Adam and Eve sin in the garden, the fall of man, they take the, the fruit off the tree and, you know, they listen to the serpent and they sin and they, they know the difference between good and evil. God comes and says, hey, says to the serpent, there will be enmity between you and the offspring of Adam and Eve, human offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
you shall bruise his heel. From that point on, God said this is how it's going to happen. He was foretelling the death of Jesus Christ. He was foretelling the plan of salvation. And the fall of man brings upon the focus of salvation. The idea that man must be saved. And it's all done in the work on the cross, in the death, and the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all done there. It becomes, it is the center of the story of Scripture. It is the center of the biblical narrative. It is the center of Christianity. Without it, we would not be saved. It is the center of that biblical narrative. Verse number three, it brings in the new covenant. Jesus says, as he's experiencing and sharing the Last Supper with his disciples, he says, hey, take this bread it is, it is a symbol of my body, broken, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he takes the cup. He goes, this is the symbol. This is the token of the new covenant. This of my blood, my blood, my death, my shedding of the blood on the cross will bring about a new covenant with God. The old one is, is past. The idea of, of the sacrificial system and trying to keep the law and doing all that, it's gone. My blood brings about a new covenant. My blood pays for all that. My blood is the sacrifice for all that. So it brings in this new covenant. In, in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, it talks about we will no longer have, have hearts of flesh, but we'll have the spirit in our hearts. You know, we will have the spirit. We'll have a new heart um, in this new covenant. And we won't say, hey, everyone needs to know the Lord. They will already know the Lord because he will be in their hearts. And the only way that happens is by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A new covenant needed to be brought, and the only way it was going to happen was by his crucifixion, by his death and burial and resurrection. So, moving on. It redefines power in the kingdom. Remember how I mentioned that Pilate said, hey, I have the power to release you. I have the power to crucify you. I have the power. And Jesus says, no, you don't. I have the power. And, and here is the power in the kingdom, as Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, hey, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He also says before that, if you want to be the greatest, guess what? You have to be someone else's servant. In fact, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. And who is the greatest servant of all? Jesus Christ, because he gives himself. He serves us all by laying down his life paying the price for our sins. In fact, when he says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, the beginning of Mark 1, you know, repent, you know, and believe in the gospel, he's saying the kingdom is not coming in the power that we think of Roman, of political, military, what we think is power. No, power comes through being the servant of all, being willing to lay down your life. And obviously, we see that as Paul writes in Philippians 2 when he says, hey, Jesus, yes, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, has exalted him to the highest place, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he was willing to die. He became the servant of all. And if you want to be a servant in the kingdom of God and you want to live out the kingdom of God, then this is the example to follow. You too must serve. You too must be willing to give 
for others the way Christ gave for us on that cross. Point five, it conquers sin and it conquers death. Colossians 2.14 says that it cancels the sin debt. It cancels the record of debt that was against us. We had a debt of sin that we could not pay. We know the old song. We won't sing it. You can sing it in your head if you want. He paid a debt. You know, you know it. Sing it to yourself. It's okay um, if it helps you. But the idea, he paid our debt. He canceled that debt by what he did on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he died on that cross so that we would also die to sin. We've had the, the record canceled. Now we're supposed to die to sin just like he died on the cross. We're not supposed to have anything to do with sin. We have this new life because of this death. Galatians 3.13 once again tells us that he became the curse for us to redeem us, to buy us back, to purchase us for God. He became that curse. He hung on that tree to redeem us, to take away the sin, to buy us out of our sinful state. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, once again, as we already read, it frees us. We've been freed from the fear and slavery of death. Death, as we sang, no longer has a hold on me, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You know, we no longer fear death. We no longer are bound by death because Jesus Christ died for us. He took away the sting of sin and death by his crucifixion by how he died and how he was buried. Point six, it vanquishes the devil. Colossians 2.15, which comes right after 2.14. Yes, you are correct on that. Um, It disarms and puts to shame the rulers of this world. And and what Paul is writing there, yes, yes, the Romans and the Jewish rulers of the time, but it, it puts to shame the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 6 tells us. It puts to shame Satan. It disarms him. He used death as a tool. He used death as a a way to keep people enslaved and keep people fearful. He uses death as a weapon, but because Jesus Christ died and was buried, he took away, he disarmed death by his death. And Hebrews 2, 14, once again, it says it destroys the power of the devil. The devil didn't, didn't want Jesus Christ to go to the cross. The devil did not want Jesus Christ to fulfill the mission of salvation. That's why he tempts him at the beginning of his ministry and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and brings him up to the highest point and says, throw yourself down. He tempts him in so many ways because he knew where Jesus was going and he knew if Jesus went there, all his power, all his, what he used to enslave people would no longer have any sting, would no longer have any grip. Jesus would destroy it. And that's what Jesus does when he dies on the cross and is buried. He destroys death. He dies to destroy death. And so then, I kind of wrote that twice, didn't I? That's my fault. Um, Oops. Got to get there just in case you missed it for the first time. So number eight, which should be seven, um, it's he becomes our substitutionary sacrifice. John 1.29 says that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John says it to his disciples as Jesus is walking by. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the one who will be the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. It is Jesus Christ. And how was he going to do it? He was going to do it by dying on the cross. 
1 John 4.10, many of you know, I love to quote this. It says this, in this is the love of God, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. God loved us. Jesus Christ loved us so much that he was willing to die, take our place, be that sacrifice for our sins. We couldn't do it. And what does that sacrifice do? What does that death do? It takes the wrath of God. This is what propitiation means for all those who think it's a big word and you don't want to find out what it means. It basically means this. It takes the wrath of God and it turns it into favor. Jesus Christ's sacrifice took upon the wrath of God and it turned it into favor for us. His death, his crucifixion did it all for us. And then finally we see, or number nine, we see it brings peace and reconciliation. Ephesians 2.14 says that the wall of hostility has been broken down and that he is our peace. We have peace with God, as Romans 5.1 tells us, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Colossians 1.20 says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. The way he brought about peace was through death on the cross. Think about that. Once again, all these things being brought about by death. It makes us righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are righteous in the sight of God because Jesus Christ tasted the penalty for our sin, tasted death, died for us, so we are now the righteousness of God. We can be the righteousness of God. We can live righteously before God. Before that, we couldn't. Our righteousness was as filthy rags. Foolishness and power or wisdom. The cross of Christ is, is foolishness to the world, as Paul writes in, in 123. Jews seek signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is foolishness to the world. How could the Savior, how could the Messiah, how could this leader bring about all these things by death? That's foolish. Why would you die? Why would you be willing to die? Why would you be willing to be the servant of all? It is foolishness to the world, especially in a society that says, put yourself first, get to the top, no matter how you can, take advantage of anybody you can as long as you're number one. It is foolishness to the world that someone would be willing to die so that we would have life, to go that low, to take our place, to die for people who didn't deserve it, who didn't love him, and to take the wrath of God and turn it into favor. It is foolishness. But to those who believe, to those of us who have been called, to believers in Christ, to Christians, it is the power and wisdom of God. It is not foolish. We recognize, we remember that we need it because without it, we would be lost. Without it, we would be sinners headed for the wrath of God for a lost eternity. Without it, we would be doomed. Eternal life with God would not be an option. But it is the power. It is the wisdom of God. Not only does it save us, but it now allows us to come to God righteously. It allows us to come before him boldly as Hebrews tells us in chapter 4. 
we can boldly approach the throne of grace so that he would give mercy to help us in our time of need. It also helps us to understand who God is and what he wants for our life, that wisdom. God saying, yes, I sent my son to die for you, to save you from your sins, but also to have a life with me. Let me show you what that life is to be. Believe on me, and you will have eternal life. And I will show you great and wonderful things. I will show you who I am. I will make myself known to you. And we will fellowship together. We will have a relationship. That it brings us into that wisdom of God. And then the last point that it establishes establishes that as believers, it defines our calling, it defines our marching orders. Once again, it's, it's not useless information. It's not something that we're just supposed to consume and sit here and say, that was nice, that was wonderful, I'll think about it. No, we're supposed to be active. As, as we read today in the breaking of bread and we heard about the breaking of, of bread, that we're supposed to be moving, arise, and, and going. Jesus did it for us. And we see that in Acts, that a lot of things got done for the church, through the church, by the church and for God because those people were willing to act and move on what they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they believed that he died for their sins. He was crucified and buried. And the idea is that we are to take these things and they are to lead us. We are to be moving with them. We're not supposed to be sitting like bumps on a log. It is our calling card. And and these are some of the things that it brings out. Um, It is what we are known by. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, In verse 2, he says, I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what's important. When other believers come to us, when the world sees us, do they understand that we believe in Jesus Christ and that he was crucified? Is that what they know us by, that we are who we are because of his crucifixion, because of his death, because of his burial, and ultimately, yes, because of his resurrection, because he went through all that? Do people say to us, I know you, because I know that Jesus Christ is proclaimed among you, preached among you, and him being crucified is preached and known among you as well. Everything else is secondary. This is primary. Without it, we wouldn't be a church. That's what Paul's saying. Everything else I'll take care of later, but this is the one thing I desire. It's not about anybody else. It's not about teachers. It's not about who you think is the best teacher, who you should follow as a teacher. It's about this, Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that is what you need to know, and that is what needs to be known among you. Luke 9, 23, famous verse that we hate to read, that we think we can live up to, but when we're honest with ourselves, it's so hard to do. Whoever would come after me and be my disciple, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. (laughs) Jesus said that because he took up his own cross. And he says, if you are truly going to be my disciple, if you are truly going to follow me, guess what? You need to have the same attitude. You need to take up your cross. You need to die to things. You need to die to yourself. You need to die to sin. If you truly want to live that life for me, you must do the same. So many times Jesus told people, hey, go and do likewise. You know, think about the guy who, the lawyer who says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. He says, who showed mercy? And he said, the Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And here, this is one of those verses where Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. If you want to follow me, if you want to live for me, take up your cross daily and follow me. Go and do likewise. We've been crucified with him. So therefore, we live by and we live for him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's writing that, but we can say it with him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been crucified with him. So therefore we have died to ourself, died to the old self, died to sin. So therefore now we live by him and for him. It needs to be our mindset. Yes, Paul writes Philippians 2, 6 through 11 about Jesus being obedient to the point of death and being exalted to the highest place and receiving the name above every name. But the verse before that, it says, have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same mind of Christ, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is our mindset. That is what we are supposed to be thinking about and having as we go through this world. That servant of all mindset. And then it should lead us triumphantly. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17 says that we are led in triumphant or triumphal procession. We are led, we are marching in triumph, in victory, because of what Christ has done for us. And as we share the gospel and people know that Jesus Christ is amongst us and him being crucified is important to us, we give off that fragrance, as Paul says, a fragrance of death to death, death to death to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe, but to those who believe a fragrance of life to life. That's, it's supposed to lead us. We are supposed to march in triumphant victory because of it through Jesus Christ. So we can go out and be led by it. Whoever thought that <laughs> crucifixion would be the thing that leads someone to victory? But we've seen that. Jesus proved that. We have that victory because of his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. We sang earlier, the words of Isaac Watts, and I just want to read them to you now. What, what do we do with this? And I think Watts, as he contemplated the crucifixion and the death, maybe even contemplated this creed, he writes these words. And he can say these words because it's been validated. It's been established. And he can say, I believe in this. Yes, I believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died and was buried, and he descended into the dead. I believe it, and I hold to it. And you know what? It's a beautiful thing, and it leads me. And he writes these words that we sang. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present or an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If we believe, if we say, I believe in this, in this crucifixion, I believe that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and descended into the dead. If we say we believe that, then we should be echoing the words of Watts and saying, yes, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Because if we believe it, we believe that Jesus gave it all, and he paid it all, then it's all to him we owe. 
And truly, when we look at the crucifixion, we can say it is wonderful. It is wondrous because of what it means, because of its reality, and what it does for us, and how it calls us to go forward and march in triumphant victory in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, and we just thank you for these thoughts, and that we have this opportunity to, to break down this creed, Lord, of what we believe in. And Lord, it's, it's so simple, yes, in the statement that it makes, and the words that are used, but Lord, as we just looked at and we just discussed and heard, there's a lot more to it, and, and there's a lot more than what we just discussed as well. We could keep on going and, and discussing what we believe in about the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, but we know it's important because we know without it, salvation would not be possible. Without it, we would be lost sinners headed for the wrath of God, but because it happened, we have so much more. We have so much more. We have been saved. We have been forgiven. We have been washed. Death no longer has a hold on us, Lord. We are free indeed. We are free to serve you, free to live for you, free to live by you. And so, Lord, help us to live that out, to let the cross, this crucifixion, be our marching orders, be our example, and lead us in triumphant victory and triumphant procession as we go into this world. Let the world know that we believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified and that that is our cornerstone, that is our key, and that is the ultimate thing because everything else comes out of that, that it is the center of our salvation story and it's the center of the biblical story, Lord. So we are thankful. We are thankful that you died on the cross for our sins, that you were buried, but then ultimately, Lord, as we know and as we will discuss later, you rose again for us, Lord. We are thankful for that, and we are thankful that it's real, and we're thankful that we can believe in it and hold to it and cling to it because it is a wonderful story. We thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen.